Chapter 7. A Vision of the Future Zion, the Ascension of Abraham. I, the Lord, am merciful and gracious unto those who fear me, and delight to honor those who serve me in righteousness and in truth unto the end. Great shall be their reward, and eternal shall be their glory. And to them will I reveal all mysteries, yea, all the hidden mysteries of my kingdom from days of old and for ages to come. Will I make known unto them the good pleasure of my will concerning all things pertaining to my kingdom. Yea, even the wonders of eternity shall they know, and things to come will I show them. Even the things of many generations, and their wisdom shall be great, and their understanding reach to heaven. Doctrine and Covenants 76, 5-9 Crisis in the Covenant Ceremony According to John Taylor, the Melchizedek priesthood conferred upon Abraham would be the means of introducing him into the presence of God, and some of the greatest and most sublime truths that ever were made known to man. On another occasion, John Taylor declared that Abraham gazed upon his posterity as they should exist through the various ages of time, a statement remarkable for the fact that, when made, no known source described any such thing in the life of Abraham. Since John Taylor's day, a number of ancient sources have emerged that describe in striking detail an occasion when Abraham was indeed introduced into the presence of God in heaven, who taught him and showed him his posterity as they would exist through the ages. The event is not recorded in Genesis, but corresponds to the occasion that Genesis does describe immediately following Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek. After these things, says Genesis, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision. A rabbinic commentary notes that the word of the Lord came to Abraham after he had returned all of the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, says a modern rabbi, Abraham qualified for his special relationship with God because of his exemplary relationship with his fellow beings. More immediately, however, according to another rabbinic source, the revelation came only after Abraham had occupied himself in studying the words of Scripture with deep meditation and reflection. This phenomenon of revelation following Scripture study and meditation would be repeated over and over among Abraham's righteous posterity, as with, for example, his descendants Joseph Smith, after reading and reflecting on the promises of James, and Joseph F. Smith, after pursuing and pondering the epistle of Peter. What God told Abraham, according to Genesis, was, Fear not, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Once again, Abraham exemplifies what is possible for all. For as the rabbis commented, God is a shield to all of them that take refuge in him. Jewish sources further point out that, ironically, God's instruction to Abraham to fear not is addressed only to a person who truly fears God, showing that only one who truly fears God can be without fear of man. The courage and strength of character needed to face the trials and tribulations of our world can come only from a deep and abiding faith in God and his goodness. A similar paradox governs the law of rewards, as seen in what God told Abraham, your reward shall be very great because means because you spurned the reward of mortal men, a great reward is in store from you from me. The lesson is clear, says a modern rabbi. He who looks to man for his reward in life denies himself the far greater rewards, spiritual and material, that can come only from God, that are bestowed only upon those who are not consumed for the desire for reward from their fellow man. Or, in a parlance of Latter-day Revelation, one can receive the fullness of the Lord's blessings only by serving with an eye single to the glory of God. Coming as it does immediately following Abraham's reception of the Melchizedek priesthood and temple ordinances, the timing of the Lord's statement that he would be Abraham's shield and reward apparently appears particularly significant for Latter-day Saints. 
President Boyd K. Packer has explained, Our labors in the temple cover us with a shield and a protection. In addition, Abraham was about to be taught firsthand precisely how the Lord could act as his protection and his shield. In Latter-day Revelation, when the Lord gave the same counsel to Abraham's Latter-day seed, Fear not, repeated three times. The Lord indicated why they need not fear. Behold the wounds which pierced my side, and also the prints of the nails in my hands and my feet. Abraham was about to see in vision the great event that would inflict those wounds and win victory for the Son of God and all those who follow him. The dialogue recorded in Genesis between God and Abraham on this occasion is merely an abridgment, as stated by the Midrash Rabbah. One lost piece of the original is restored by the Joseph Smith translation, which adds that after God promised to be a shield, he said, And according to the blessings of my servant, I will give unto thee. In context, the servant must be Melchizedek, who had just blessed Abraham. Similarly, in the combat of Adam expressly names Melchizedek in its more detailed account of what God now told Abraham. Fear not, great is thy reward with me, and in like matter is Melchizedek my high priest, bless thee, and may thee partaker with himself of holy mysteries, so will I make thee partaker with him of heavenly grace. While this statement could refer in the long run to the final celestial inheritance that both Abraham and Melchizedek would ultimately attain, in a more immediate sense it might well have been interpreted by Abraham to indicate that he might ascend with Melchizedek to the translated city. But there may have been even more to the opening portion of the dialogue between the Lord and Abraham, which was introduced according to most rabbinic sources when Abraham was concerned about something, perhaps over whether he had shed innocent blood, or whether the kings would return with revenge. Pursuant to Abraham's pattern, he would have prayed fervently over such concerns, and as such prayers sometimes brought personal appearances of the Lord, as seen in the book of Abraham, so Jewish sources tell that God appeared to Abraham on this occasion. This seemed to be the setting for God telling Abraham to not fear. Abraham's response, according to Genesis, was, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. The Midrash insists that Abraham's question to God, what wilt thou give me, presupposes that God had instructed Abraham to ask for what he desired. If such a thing appears to be merely the stuff of legend, in the case of God's most faithful servants, it does happen, as seen in the Book of Mormon when the Savior appeared to his Nephite twelve. In answer to fervent prayer over a pressing problem, and then invited each of them to ask whatever they wished of him. What three of the Nephite disciples desired and received was to be translated. If the Jewish tradition is correct in telling that Abraham also was offered whatever he desired, it presented him with the opportunity of a lifetime, the chance to attain what he had so long sought. Translation to the city of Enoch's Zion. Finally, it was his just for the asking, but apparently this opportunity touched a deep chord. Something else, associated with the future Zion below, was paramount in his thoughts. For despite the great blessings of riches and honor and lands for an everlasting possession that Abraham had been promised, yet one thing weighed so heavily on him that, according to one source, he wept and supplicated before the Holy One, and asked the Lord what he would give to Abraham. Above the riches and popularity of the world, and even above Abraham's long quest for the city of Zion, was his desire for fatherhood, his desire for the posterity that would, bl would bless the world. But how is it that Abraham, paragon of faith, queried the God about what he had already repeatedly promised. Was Abraham perhaps simply reminding God that despite all his gifts, 
The one not yet given was the one long promised, the gift of posterity? Or was Abraham saying something like, what good give, what good will your gifts be if I keep on being childless? Or, to what purpose are your gifts when I continue childless? Yet even this was no lack of faith in God's prior promises, for as the rabbis explain, Abraham was wondering if he had misunderstood, thinking perhaps those promises of posterity might have meant to his family or to his household, but not to his own son, who would come out of himself. And so, according to Jubilees, Abraham pled with the Lord, Give me descendants. It was a poignant plea for what had already been a long promise but never fulfilled. A direct and childlike petition by the great and humble man whose heart longed for posterity. The Lord answered by specifying that one born from his own body would be his heir, and that Abraham's seed would indeed inherit the land. How, Abraham asked, wilt thou give me this land for an everlasting inheritance? The Lord answered, Though thou wast dead, yet am I not able to give it unto thee? Abraham, ever the seeker of further light and knowledge, inquired, My Lord, show me how thou givest life to the dead. In the Genesis version of the story in chapter 15, Abraham is then told to offer sacrifice, and in doing so, hears God tell him about the Egyptian sojourn of his descendants. But, as one biblical scholar explains, the account as we have it appears to have been composed of various fragments that have been brought or have grown together. That the original account is in fact included much more is indicated in the Joseph Smith translation, which adds that Abraham saw and envisioned the days of Christ and by rabbinic tradition relating that Abraham ascended to heaven on this occasion. Similarly, the Samaritan Asatir asserts, Great was this event, there was none like it. Since Joseph Smith's day, there has emerged a text that not only affirms Abraham's vision of Christ, but also tells that Abraham was not on earth when he saw the vision. The text is the Apocalypse of Abraham, which appeared for the first time in English in the Improvement Era, at the present time, except for the book of Abraham in Genesis, the Apocalypse of Abraham is undoubtedly our most important ancient Abrahamic text. Besides its parallels with the book of Abraham, the Apocalypse describes in detail a heavenly ascent by Abraham in a story that contains snippets of the experience alluded to in a number of other texts from ancient Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. The story of that ascent begins when the Lord instructs Abraham to prepare himself and everything necessary to make a solemn sacrifice of several kinds of animals and birds, a sacrificial creatures of the future Jerusalem temple. And in that sacrifice, the Lord promised, I will set out for you the secrets of the ages and tell you hidden things, and you shall see great things, which you have not seen, for you have loved me and to seek me out, and I have called you friend or my beloved. The sacrifice was to be performed strictly according to the Lord's instructions, and while Abraham was fasting, and in a place which I will show you on a high mountain. After all of the preparation, as Abraham stood in the appointed place, he took the sacrificial beasts and cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. As explained by scholars, what to the modern mind may seem as a mysterious ceremony actually was a standard ritual of covenant-making, which in a similar form was well known to many ancient peoples. When the animals are halved and laid opposite each other, and when the parent or partners to the covenant stride through the lane that has thus been formed, they express thereby a curse upon themselves in the event that the covenant is broken, saying, May the deity chop the covenant breaker into pieces like these animals. But the surprising fact in the Abraham story, which is also unique in the history of religions, is that God himself enters into a communal relationship with Abraham under the forms 
which among men guarantee the greatest contractual security. As Abraham arranged the carcasses, the ceremony was unexpectedly interrupted, as Genesis recounts. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. Gerhard von Rad comments that the swooping down of the birds of prey could be understood as an evil omen. Or are they perhaps evil powers who intend at the last moment to thwart the conclusion of the covenant? In fact, in the apocalypse of Abraham, the unclean bird that swoops down on the carcass is Satan, who attempted to intimidate Abraham. The Genesis report that Abraham drove the birds away, in addition to a literal event, may carry a deeper meaning. He drove them away through repentance. That is to say, Abraham's constancy in keeping the commandments meant that, as Jesus would later say, the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. As darkness fell, according to Genesis, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces, perhaps signifying, as an early church father said, the end of the world and the burning that will take place. It was apparently then, as told by Genesis, that a trance fell upon Abraham, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him, not unlike a thick darkness that would surround young Joseph Smith before his momentous revelatory experience. As Abraham tells in the Apocalypse, I looked this way and that, and behold, there was no sign of anyone. And my spirit was amazed, and I became like a stone and fell face down upon the earth. For there was no longer strength in me to stand up on the earth. This appears to be the occasion reported by Origen, apparently quoting an Abrahamic text, telling that the angels of righteousness and of iniquity disputed over Abraham, each band wishing to claim him for its own company. Led by an angel from on high. At that terrifying moment, Abraham heard the voice of God directing an angel to go and strengthen him. Abraham even heard God call the angel by name, Yahweh, of the same name. The same name as whom? Of God himself, who will later in the apocalypse of Abraham be called by this very name. In fact, the name is a combination of the two divine names from the Hebrew Bible, the Greek form of Yahweh, transliterated from the King James translators as Jehovah, the name of the God of Israel, along with the word El, meaning God. So who was this angel that was privileged to bear the Lord's own name? It was none other than Enoch, whose first of 70 other names listed in 3rd Enoch is Yahweh. The 20th century's leading authority on the Kabbalah Gershom Shalom was similarly shown that the angel who appears to Abraham in the Apocalypse is indeed the same that later Jewish sources call Metatron or Enoch. It was the same angel who had rescued Abraham from the altar in Ur and had later delivered him the patriarchal authority and the ordinances, including the baptism of life and the right hand. The first thing Enoch does upon arrival is to cast out Satan from Abraham's presence. Depart from this man, declares Enoch. Depart, for you can never lead him astray. Enoch then extended his right hand to Abraham, an indication that there that this was no spirit, but rather a translated being of flesh and bones. For as yet there was no resurrected being serving as angels to planet Earth. As told by Abraham, the angel took me by the right hand and said to me, Stand up, friend of God, who loves you. I am sent to you to strengthen you and to bless you in the name of God who loves you. It is for your sake that I have made the journey to Earth. Take courage and come, rejoice and be glad of heart. And I will rejoice with you, for eternal honor has been prepared for you by the Eternal One, and come with me to meet him with all speed. But first carry through the sacrifice as you have been commanded, for behold, I am appointed to be with you and with the people who are to spring from you, and with Michael blesses you forever. Take courage, come. 
And as Abraham relates in the apocalypse, I got up and looked at him who had taken my right hand and set me on my feet. And his body was like a sapphire and his face was like chrysolite and his hair of his head was like snow. And there was a linen band around his head and it was like a rainbow and the robes he was wearing were purple and had such a golden staff in his hand. Not only does his apparel have strong priestly associations, but the rainbow surrounding his head seems to be a sign that he is from God's throne, which is surrounded by a rainbow. Medieval Jewish texts associate Enoch's Metatron with the rainbow, which in restored scripture figures prominently as a sign of the covenant that God had made with Enoch, that in the latter days he and his city would return to the earth. Enoch thus exhibited around his own person the very sign pretending his latter day return to the earth. Enoch explains that Abraham will be allowed to see what is in heaven and on earth and in the fullness of the universe and in its cycle. You shall see it all. Enoch then takes Abraham to a holy mountain where, from where he sees hell and its tortures, a sight that leaves Abraham weak, apparently similar to what Moses would experience when he began to fear exceedingly and saw the bitterness of hell. Enoch also introduces Abraham to other men, at which point, according to Nibley, Abraham receives instructions at an altar, surrounded by men forming a circle around him. These men are not otherwise named or described, but they are apparently some of Enoch's colleagues from the translated city of Zion, including perhaps some of Melchizedek's Salem. Then came the sign of the Holy Ghost unto Abraham in the form of a dove. As Abraham was caught up by the Spirit and accompanied by Enoch to heaven, he had glimpsed God's abode from afar on the night before he had entered Egypt, but now he was being taken there, following the pattern of his righteous forefathers, Enoch, Seth, and Adam. In heaven, Abraham sees glory like a great fire approaching, and hears the voice of the Lord like a voice of many waters, or the sound of rushing waters, the same description given by Joseph Smith of the Lord's voice in the Kirtland Temple. Then, clad in the garment of glory, Abraham becomes like one of the glorified beings and takes part in the song of praise chanted by them in heaven to God. The profound effect of this experience on Abraham may be surmised by the later experience of his descendant Alma, who upon seeing the same scene and hearing the same celestial strains sung at the throne of the Almighty, felt that my soul did long to be there. Such also was the righteous King Benjamin's greatest desire, that he might one day join the choirs above in singing the praises of a just God. And such was the prophet Joseph Smith's great desire for himself and all the Latter-day Saints, that we may mingle our voices with those bright, shining seraphs around thy throne, with acclamations of praise, singing Hosanna to God and the Lamb. Abraham had spoken face to face with the Lord before, but never in the Lord's own abode. Having received the fullness of the temple ordinances from Melchizedek, Abraham was qualified to be ushered into the presence of the Lord, and so it happened. As Enoch took Abraham to the divine throne, where he saw four fiery-winged creatures, and behind them a chariot with fiery wheels. And above the wheels was a throne, covered with fire, and the fire encircled it round about. It was the same blazing chariot throne that would be seen by Abraham's descendants Daniel and Ezekiel, um, the latter also reporting the presence of four creatures protecting the throne. Abraham now understood the significance of the chariot of fire that had once he had once seen and that the Lord had mentioned in Haran. It was the image of the divine throne as imitated extensively by rulers throughout the ancient Near East, and as Abraham himself had probably seen in the courts of Nimrod and Pharaoh. The Beloved Son Teaches the Beloved Abraham Having introduced Abraham at the throne of God, Enoch apparently steps away. 
According to the Sefer Yetzirah, a temple text, says Nibli, Abraham raises his hand, and the Lord filled it to overflowing, a scene which may possibly be depicted in figure 7 of facsimile 2 in the book of Abraham. Apparently, Abraham was then handed a crystalline object allowing him to read the secrets of the universe and of creation, and handed a heavenly book. The Lord identified himself to Abraham as the one whom you have searched for and who has loved you. Raising him, rising from his throne, the Lord revealed himself to him and took him into his bosom and kissed him on the head, and he called him Abraham, my beloved. Is It is the title for which Abraham is remembered, and the title appearing in the Lord's mention of Abraham as recorded in the writings of Isaiah, Abraham, my beloved friend. Nephi would similarly remember that God loved Abraham, and to this day among many of Abraham's Muslim descendants he is spoken of as Abraham, the beloved friend. The Sefer Yetzirah further tells that Abraham's experience came after he had looked, probed, and thought, or searched, discerned, and delved or as described in the recognitions of Clement, was desirous to learn the causes of things and was intently pondering upon what had been told him. It was then that God appeared to him and disclosed all things which he desired. Abraham's experience foreshadows that of his admiring descendant Nephi, who similarly pondered prior to his revelatory experience what he also was shown the things that he desired. So also the youthful Joseph Smith reported that prior to his glorious first vision, I pondered many things in my heart. What Abraham first learned, says the recognitions of Clement, concerned the knowledge of that divinity, the importance of what, of which can be judged by Joseph Smith's statement that it is the first principle of the gospel to know for a certainty the character of God, and to know that we may converse with him as one man converses with another. Although Abraham has conversed with God face to face before, this occasion was further divine disclosure along the path to eternal life, which, as Joseph Smith taught, the, to know the only wise and true God. And is it a coincidence that the one mortal man who had most frequently visited the Savior on earth in caring for the least of his brethren now had been brought to greet the Savior and learn yet more about him at his celestial throne? We also know from Joseph Smith's writings that Abraham ended up with such knowledge of the Godhead that he wrote about each of them and their individual functions and relationship. We might surmise that on this occasion the Savior introduced Abraham to the Father and the Holy Ghost. The Savior then showed Abraham the heavens and all they contain, including the kingdom of the heavens and the very streets of heaven, even as would be seen later by Joseph Smith when he saw Abraham in that kingdom. An Islamic source says that our Lord removed the veils from the seven spheres of heaven and earth for him, so that Abraham saw everything from the dust of the earth to the high throne of heaven. Also included in Abraham's view was the panorama of the stars that had once been shown from the earth. Now from this vantage point he heard the Lord tell him, Look from on high at the, at the stars which are beneath you, and count them for me, and tell me their number. To which Abraham replied, How can I? For I am but a man. Said the Lord, So shall your, be your seed. As Abraham saw the number of stars multiply behind, beyond human capacity to count, his heart was filled with joy and gladness. But it was to the earth and to its figure that God now pointed as he began to unfold to Abraham the secrets of the ages. Years earlier he had seen the early history beginning with the creation of the world and the events of the Garden of Eden. Now he was shown the rest of the history from his day forward. From the fire of the divine throne, God speaks to Abraham, revealing to him the future of his descendants. 
even the course of Israel's history and the history of the whole world. In the words of John Taylor, Abraham gazed upon his posterity as they should exist through the various ages of time. He saw, for example, that his posterity would sojourn in Egypt and come out with great possessions, and would inherit Abraham's land and build the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. In the Genesis account, which says nothing of Abraham being in heaven or seeing a vision on this occasion, he is merely told that his posterity will come out of Egypt, and then hears God suddenly change the subject and say, And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and thou shalt be buried in a good old age. The statement is generally interpreted to be a soothing assurance to Abraham of a peaceful death in the contentment of old age. But in the larger context of the apocalypse, with Abraham now basking in the glorious divine presence at the very throne of God, to hear that his mortal life would be prolonged is surely no comfort. But according to the Joseph Smith translation, the Lord not only mentioned the peaceable nature of Abraham's future passing, but specifically informed Abraham about his future death. Thou shalt die. Death is the common lot of mankind, so why would the Lord bother mentioning this to Abraham? Abraham had long sought the translated city of Enoch and the order of priesthood giving access to that city. Having finally received that priesthood from Melchizedek, another mortal seeking Enoch city, Abraham had then been told that he would be a particular with Melchizedek of heavenly grace. Then Enoch himself had led Abraham into heavenly realms, perhaps leading him to expect that he was what he was finally to receive was what he had so long sought, translation to Enoch's city of Zion. In fact, it appears that Abraham could have asked for and received this gift, but chose otherwise. He chose to remain on earth to receive fulfillment of the blessing of a posterity that would bless the earth, bless all nations, and to build Zion. Abraham would remain on the earth to instruct and train his offspring for the great mission that lay ahead of them and their descendants. No sooner did God tell his friend Abraham that he would die, than God also showed him how the Savior would overcome death. As related in the Joseph Smith translation, Abraham looked forth and saw the days of the coming of the Son of Man, who, as Abraham was told, would be his own descendant. As Abraham beheld the mortal ministry of the Savior, he saw, according to the apocalypse of Abraham, a great crowd, and they worshipped him, but others insulted this man, and some struck him. From the unique vantage point of standing at the very throne of the pre-mortal Christ, who would be Abraham's descendant in the flesh, and he whose life Abraham was foreshadowing in his own, Abraham saw the amazing depth to which the King of Heaven would descend to minister to mankind and to atone for their sins. Abraham saw for himself what the descendant King Benjamin would hear an angel declare, The time cometh, that with power the Lord Omnipotent, who reigneth, who was and is from all eternity to all eternity, shall come down from the heaven among the children of men, and shall dwell in the tabernacle of clay, and shall go forth amongst men, working mighty miracles. And lo, he shall suffer temptations of pain of body, hunger, thirst, and fatigue, even more than man can suffer, except it be unto death. For behold, blood cometh from every pore, so great shall be his anguish for the wickedness and abominations of his people, and he shall be called Jesus Christ, the Son of God." As Abraham viewed these events, he also heard the Savior explain, as recorded in the Joseph Smith translation, that the day cometh that the Son of Man shall live. But how can he live if he be not dead? He must first be quickened. Thus Abraham saw that not only the Savior's crucifixion and death, but also his resurrection. And, as has happened with Enoch, Abraham was glad, and his soul found rest, and he believed in the Lord, and the Lord counted it unto him for righteousness. Ambrose, an early church father, similarly explained of Abraham on this occasion that he believed that Christ, through the Incarnation, would become his heir. 
Thus did Abraham see and believe in Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice that would bring resurrection to all and celestial victory to the righteous. It was because of this victory and the victor that Abraham needed not fear. The abbreviated version that survived in the Genesis text says nothing about the Savior, but says simply that Abraham believed in the Lord, who counted it to him for righteousness. Commenting on this verse, a rabbinic source states that uh, great is belief since the Lord counted it to Abraham for righteousness. One thinks immediately of the words of the angel to Nephi, Blessed art thou, Nephi, because thou believest in the Son of the Most High God. Abraham's belief is a pattern, according to Chrysostom. Let us learn, I beseech you, a lesson for yourselves as well as from the patriarch. Let us believe in the words of God and trust in his promise. Let us not apply the yardstick of our own reasoning to give evidence of deep gratitude. But another translation of the Genesis verse telling that Abraham believed in the Lord points to what it means to believe. Because Abraham put his trust in the Lord, he reckoned it to his merit. Abraham's lifelong trust in the Almighty was the key determinant of his life, insisted the ancient rabbis. You find that Abraham inherited both this world and the world to come only because he put his trust in the Lord, a trust that impelled him to come before God with clean hands and a pure heart. Trust in the Lord figures prominently also in the record of Abraham's Nephi descendants, whose first author Nephi, an ardent admirer of Abraham, wrote, O Lord, I have trusted in thee, and I will trust in thee forever. I will not put my trust in the arm of flesh, for I know that cursed is he that putteth his trust in the arm of flesh. And it was Nephi's successor, King Benjamin, who emphasized that the atonement was prepared, that thereby salvation might come to him that putteth their, his trust in the Lord. In Abraham's case, he is privileged to be shown the future atoning sacrifice by him who would make it, a supreme illustration showing in whom mankind must put their trust. God then told Abraham, according to a Samaritan source, that he was one of those who will in the future inhabit the Garden of Eden. Paradise would indeed be his, not the temporary terrestrial paradise of the city of Enoch, but the eternal celestial paradise of God, which Enoch's city would also eventually enjoy. Abraham's eternal paradise would eventually be on the very land where he was living, the land that God now covenanted to give to him and his posterity forever. Abraham received the promise, as recorded in Mendean text, that after returning to the world as God's special messenger or apostle, he would eventually be allowed to return to heaven and be given his crown, his garment, and his throne. A View of the Last Days God then revealed to him the end of the times. Abraham saw that in the last days his own righteous posterity would be the people set apart for the Lord, but would be put to the test in that ungodly age of great plagues and misfortunes, and would be humiliated and mocked and ruled over and threatened with destruction. When Abraham's forefather Enoch had been shown events of the future, he had pled for mercy for his descendants, and the Lord granted Enoch's request by making a covenant. So it had apparently happened now with Abraham as he foresaw the distress of his latter-day posterity and, according to the Jewish tradition, petitioned God for their benefit, whereupon the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. In the highly abbreviated Genesis version of the story, a, the covenant concerns merely the promise of land, but Jewish tradition held that the covenant encompassed more and that the Lord promised Abraham to redeem his children and to deliver them from the kingdoms, or, in other words, of for Ezra to never forsake his descendants. The Midrash speaks of the deep designs which the Holy One, blessed be he, arranged between himself and his noble companion, namely Abraham. 
These deep designs were made part of the covenant by virtue of which the Lord would protect his Latter-day Saints, as foretold in the Book of Mormon. I will show unto them that fight against my word and against my people, who are the house of Israel, that I am God, and that I covenanted with Abraham, that I would remember his seed forever. The passage is found in the writings of Nephi, who elsewhere uses another word in describing the same event. All that fight against Zion shall be destroyed. Nephi further describes by this destruction that will come, promising that the Lord will preserve the righteous by his power, even unto the destruction of their enemies by fire. Nephi was paraphrasing Isaiah's writings, which in turn, as one scholar has shown, preserved much of the old Enochic heritage. In fact, First Enoch tells that as the last days the wicked shall quiver, the great fear and trembling shall seize them unto the ends of the earth. Mountains and high places will fall down and melt like a honeycomb before the flame. He will preserve the elect, but destroy the wicked ones. Abraham had undoubtedly read this Enoch passage, along with the one telling that the Lord's return to the earth would be in fulfillment of his covenant to Enoch. Now Abraham himself, having received the Lord's promise to protect Abraham's latter-day posterity, was shown that the Lord would maintain them, safe in my keeping, protected by me. He would sound the trumpet from the air, and I will send my elect one with a full measure of all my power. And he shall summon my people, and those who have reviled them, and have had dominion over them in the present age, will I burn with fire. Abraham saw, in other words, that his descendant, who had once been humiliated by the powers of the earth, would in the last days come in glory to rescue others of Abraham's righteous descendants in the hour of grave danger. Then, as attested by various ancient sources, God showed him the resurrection of the dead and the future judgment, and the fates of sinners and the righteous. He thus saw not only the punishment of evil, even the wicked who rebelled during their lives, but also the reward of a good. And he watched the seats as seats were arranged and thrones were set up. A vision of such things is reserved, as the Lord has stated in Latter-day Revelation, for those who fear me, and serve me in righteousness and in truth unto the end. It was a vision for which Joseph Smith also qualified. As Abraham continued to watch, he saw something else, something that moved him deeply, something of which he had been reminded when he noticed the rainbow surrounding Enoch. What Abraham saw is mentioned in the text attributed to Baruch, a contemporary of Lehi, who, like Lehi, had foreseen the vision, the fall of Jerusalem. As Baruch was grieving over Zion because of the captivity, God informed him of another city, not this building that is in your midst now, but one that is preserved with me, and that in time will be revealed, and I showed it unto my servant Abraham in the night between the portions of the victims. It is the same city that for Ezra calls Zion, and Zion will come and be made manifest to all people, prepared and built. Thus Abraham foresaw the glorious descent of Zion, the city he had long sought in the flesh. Having just learned that he would never reside in that city in a terrestrial translated state, Abraham now saw its latter-day glory after it would return to the earth, in remarkable fulfillment of that covenant signified by the rainbow. The vision of that millennial Zion was a sight that Abraham contemplated with delight, and that fired his soul as he saw in advance the destruction of the powers of darkness, the renovation of the earth, the glory of God, and the salvation of the human family, including the purification of the Lord's people. Wilford Woodruff stated that Abraham saw that a reign of righteousness would commence, and the honest and the meek of the earth would be gathered together to serve the Lord, and upon them would rest power to build up the great Zion of God in the latter days. For many years, Abraham had longed 
to join the translated city of Zion, now seen in vision its latter-day glory. He longed to be there. A latter-day revelation speaks of Enoch and his brethren, who were separated from the earth, and were received unto myself, a city reserved until a day of righteousness shall come, a day which was sought for by all holy men, and they found it not because the wickedness and abominations, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, but obtained a promise that they should find that they should find it and see it in their flesh. If Abraham had sought the city of Enoch, he had with equal diligence sought to establish Zion and an era of righteousness on earth, but found it not because of wickedness and abominations. Now he received the promise that he would yet see it in the flesh in the great and last day when he would also join with the city of Enoch. And as Abraham had rejoiced in the vision of the first coming of Christ, so now he rejoiced in the vision of Christ's second coming. When the Son of Man would rescue Abraham's latter-day seed, those inhabitants of the earthly Zion, who would then be joined with Enoch Zion, descending from realms above. It was all a part of the covenant to Abraham, who, thanks to the Savior's atonement and resurrection, would finally be able, no, would finally in the flesh join the glorious city of Zion on earth. Having been offered the opportunity to choose what gift he wished from the Lord, notwithstanding Abraham's long quest for the translated city of Zion, he had chosen to remain below in order to become the father of those who would build Zion again on earth. No matter that at least one of his followers, the very steward and administrator of his own house, Eleazar, who had expected to be Abraham's heir, would eventually, according to rabbinic tradition, be translated. Abraham's role was to live out his life as a mortal model for his posterity, who would be charged with carrying on his mission of building the earthly Zion. And once again in Abraham's life, Zion above, the angel Enoch, had been sent to strengthen Abraham and teach him, this time about Zion of the future. But this time the translated Enoch had taken Abraham to the Lord himself, following the pattern of Enoch's own prior ascension and that of earlier patriarchs, a pattern that would come to be reflected in royal ritual of the ancient Near East in which the king is the sent one. He has ascended to heaven to receive his commission. Then he is sent out, i.e., he descends again, bearing the tablets of wisdom, the heavenly book. Thus Abraham, heir to the royal patriarchal order and authority of Adam, now descends as a sent one, a special witness of the greater one whom from the Father would send, his, send as his beloved son, even the king of Zion, he who had welcomed Abraham at the royal throne above. Abraham's exhilarating experience at the throne of God would be but a foretaste of the eternal glory awaiting him, when he would inherit his own throne of glory in the presence of God the Father and his only begotten Son. In the meantime, many centuries after Abraham, when the only begotten Son would descend from his throne to be born in a manger, he would be recognized and honored as the heavenly king by magi from the east. Who were they, and how did they know how to find and recognize the infant king? The magi are said to have called their religion Kesh e Ibrahim, or better known as the Creed of Abraham, whom they considered as their prophet and the reformer of their religion. They traced their religious books to Abraham, who was believed to have brought them from heaven. According to this tradition, it was the books brought down from Abraham, by Abraham from the throne of Jesus, which guided the Magi to the manger to worship the infant king of heaven.